The Bookworm on FabRadioInternational.com. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... Your co-host, Cy Lloyd. So, uh, on today's show, we have all sorts of amazing and wacky stuff happening. Crazy times. Uh, we are heading towards the end of The Bookworm's run. Yes, The Bookworm is running away. It's going to be reborn, Phoenix-like, um, except less fiery. Uh into much less fire because of the books. Yeah, yeah. Much less fire because of the books. Um, though maybe maybe a lower fire, maybe below fire like four five one. I'd rather be fiery than like hatching from an orc mess, like that sort of reborn. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Exploding into your ears, but not in a deafening way. Well Yes, not <laughs> uh, will be Brave New Words, which is the same sort of nonsense but with a slightly different name. But on the same time <laughs> and same, the same slot and the same people so pretty much pretty much just a rebranding uh so yes so i've gotten completely distracted because i'll be reviewing a later terrible old games you've probably never heard of by this guy called Stuart ashen never heard of him sure i will be reviewing queen of the dark things by c robert cargill the sequel to another book by c robert cargill that ed's previously reviewed but coming up next, book news! Book news! Across the world, 24 hours a day. Shall we dive straight into the Neil Gaiman thing? Let's go into the Neil Gaiman thing. So, Neil Gaiman uh, tweets a lot. He's Neil, Neil himself on Twitter. He's got a squillion followers. Um, he's very generous with the retweets. He's even retweeted so this... So it's not an exaggeration at all. He's retweeted this show in the past, so he's yeah, very so we generous. Like him. We yeah, like him. We like yeah, him. We he's a like friend yeah. of the show. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's pushing it slightly. No, it's not. Friend of the show. <laughs> friend okay. of the show. One of these days we'll have him on, I'm sure. We keep trying, actually. We keep trying. We've got close a couple of times. But anyway, um, he gets very excitable on Twitter because he's Neil Gaiman and he can be very excitable on occasion. And... Um, Essentially, very excitable, turned around and said uh, that you need to go to Clarion. If you want to be a writer, you need to go to Clarion. Now, this was hyperbole. It was clearly hyperbole. Neil Gaiman has spent most of his career handing out writing advice, which is, you know, shut up and write, just get on, just keep going, keep going. It's really hard, but keep going. You'll get yeah. there. And, you know, he's got a vast body of writing advice. A 140-character tweet where he's essentially advertising something that is organised by friends of his that he's been involved with mm. and that he's gotten an awful lot out of himself is not an excuse for suddenly Twitter to explode and declare that he's saying that writing works one way when that's not true but of course that's what's happened because it's Twitter and Twitter's a little bit awful for that sort of thing No, it's just, you just get vocal people who 
respond negatively to things they want to respond negatively about. Yeah, it's just kind of silly. It kind of, you know, it, it does... I can see why certain writers just don't do Twitter anymore, and they're just completely... Yeah, away. I mean, some people just need to grow up, and it gives them a voice, doesn't it? But on the other hand, he did hit a nerve, and it it did raise the debate about, you know, how hard it is to get into publishing and all the rest of it, which I think anyone who actually yeah. writes and wants to make money out of it knows already, but sometimes it's worth talking about. Um, so... Happier, happier and sillier things. Well, not so much happier. Uh, Pullman has resigned from the Oxford Literature Festival over author pay. Mm. Author Philip Pullman has re- re- resigned as patron of the Oxford Literary Festival in protest at its refusal to pay authors. What is it about Oxford not pay- paying creative people? Because this is, these, this is the same city that gave us the piano bar gig for £28 per night, evening dress, total flexibility, two years' experience and a, flex- and a full repertoire in a job advert earlier this week if right. you're an Oxford based person you can get in touch with us on at Radio Bookworm on Twitter uh, at Radio Bookworm on Facebook forward slash Radio Bookworm on Facebook um, or you can get in touch with us on the Tumblers as well we'd really like to know actually because we keep hearing stories about the the city of Oxford which is famous for you know, having money and education and you know people who are very switched on why won't you pay the artists i mean i suppose it's a I suppose it's a thing that happens everywhere and there's there's places all over the all over the country which will try and get as much out of you for as little as possible but it does seem to be happening a lot in oxford more than anywhere else so that's a bit odd especially you know you pay philip pullman he's philip pullman come on mm-hmm Pullman's role as president of the Society of Authors, which has been campaigning strongly for authors to be paid at festivals, made it awkward for him to continue as a patron of the festival. Uh, he added, in the early days, of the, the Oxford Festival was a small-scale and much more informal affair run on a sh- shoestring. In the recent years, it's become much larger and grander, putting on an air of being prestigious and exclusive. This is the thing: is that you know we all we all work at stuff where we give up our time and resources to to make cool things happen, but. You know, if I, I don't know, if suddenly Fab Radio became a, a rival for the BBC. Yeah, it's never going to happen. But you know, if it came to a rival for the BBC, we, you know, we we we'd want our own personal. I'd be submitting a few receipts. Let's put it that way. Yeah, a few receipts. I, I want my own transportation donkey, plated in gold. In, intriguingly, various authors claiming that they're the only people in festivals who aren't paid, which I suspect is also not true, but you can see the point that's being made. I mean, it's an expansion of the, the principle the, that you the, don't pay artists because the, they're doing the exposure. Yeah, right? there's, yeah, there's, yeah. It's, there's always a thing, isn't there, in festivals or events or conventions or anything, somebody somewhere is making money and it ain't the artists, nine mm. times out of ten. It People really die of exposure. Yes, they do. It's a real thing. You can die of exposure. Um, Some, didn't somebody recently offer to republish an article of Will Wheaton's for the exposure? And he's Will Wheaton. Yes. I should I should completely come clean at this point. I, for Starburst magazine, do do a thing where we pretty much pay an exposure. Um, we do a thing for comic strips. I, um, you can submit complete two one or two page comic strips to Starburst magazine. I will take a look at it, and if it's any good, we'll put it in the magazine. But in addition to the, in in addition to getting printed in a magazine that will be seen by thousands, you also get a free advertising package to spend at any time you want. So when we say exposure, we actually mean. Exposure. Actual exposure, yeah, like an advertising and marketing campaign, not big one, but you know, an advertising and marketing campaign. So you know, that's that's how I would define. You know, if if someone's coming along and saying, "Yeah, we'll do this," well, that's fine. Exposure is fine if it's actually exposure. Yeah. 
you know, no, no, you get to put your name on our, our thing. No, no, what I want is my name on the side of a book. Yeah, I, there's yeah. a, um, I'm, I spend a lot of time on Tumblr, as people who know me will know, um, and I've recently seen a post that was like, stop making shitty art for shitty people who dictate what to do and don't pay you for it at all um you know if you're gonna do that if you're gonna do art and not get paid for it do it yourself i think do it for yeah, yourself I, and I, your I, own umbrella you i know? think it is a question of scale when, when you've got an amount of money that's flying around the artist should have some yeah uh, apparently novelist robert harris uh, tweeted a response to the pullman situation uh, by saying so true a few insane punters paid 50 pound for a front row seat at my last event and i was given a mug Appropriately. <laughs> so that was, as I say, somebody somewhere's making money. That's witty. Yeah. Um, Apex Magazine has um, turned professional, according to the Hugo Awards people. Um, so, yes, um, Apex uh, and but Apex Magazine has ascended from semi-prozine, which makes it entitled to the semi-prozine uh, category in the Hugo Awards okay. to professional magazine uh, it's a science fiction magazine uh, with science fiction stories uh, there's a difference between a science fiction ma- a genre magazine like Starburst that tells you about movies and books and all the rest of it and reports on stuff and might have the odd short story and might have the odd comic strip in it and by odd we mean quite odd uh, <laughs> compared, <laughs> compared to the likes of Clockswood uh, Clark's World or Apex uh, that sort of thing uh, or even Grimdark magazine which are all about the the writing and the, the stories if you buy something like Grimdark magazine which is still a semi-pro magazine Grimdark is full of oddly enough Grimdark fantasy all the way through cover to cover um, so that's kind of and a lot of those tend to be on the, the semi-basis and semi, by which they mean getting back to our, our kind of starting topic the some people are being paid and most people aren't yep. but it's you know it's, it's on a semi-professional you know enough money is going through to allow it to keep going but not enough money is going through to make it you know a going a kind of career concern for anyone involved if you see what I mean yeah there's quite a few through that definition there's quite a few things that you could argue are semi-pro rather than pro but let's not go down that particular not uh, yes uh, what else is going on in the world of books um Hmm. Uh, there is uh, the the con in in Germany. Oh yes, uh, Eurocon 2017 will be in in Germany. If you're wondering about where Eurocon 2016 is happening, it's it's Barcelona, uh, which is going to be fantastic because you know Spain. Uh, we were just looking at the schedule for the the, the Barcelona one, and it starts on the Thursday with drinks and it ends <laughs> on the Monday with drinks. And in between there is drinks. Drinks. And it's it, it's that part of Spain where you know it's November as well, so it's that part of Spain where it's a little bit chilly, and it's a little bit lovely, and there's lots and lots of book people around. Yeah, drinks. Okay. I I, I think don't <laughs> talking festivals. Um, the French Anglomi Festival has uh, got into a little bit of trouble, in the sense that this year they've announced they were going to do some lifetime achievements for various artists. Mm. They they put up their shortlist. No women. How long is the shortlist, roughly? Do we know? Just, um, I think the short version is some. Right. Um, but the likes of Daniel Klaus uh, and John Tavar, we had sort of all turned around and basically went, um, yeah, you, you do know that there's 50% of the population missing from this. 
Mm. Are you talking about lifetime achievements as well? Lifetime achievement in comics, you're not just talking about artists, you're not just talking about writers, you're also talking about editors and other creators and other people involved in the industry. And let's be honest, there's... <sighs> Come on, it's 2016, guys. Uh, but, you know, in fairness, it's, it's something that I said earlier this week, actually. Um, the comics industry, the publishing industry, everything that is the genre, genre sometimes kids itself that it's a little bit more progressive because it's a little bit on the, the fringe of everything that's going on and a little bit unusual. It, it likes the kid itself that it's maybe a little bit more progressive than it actually is. And yes, it is maybe more progressive than it, than other things, but it's still got a long way to go. We've still got ages to go. You can't just take the first step and say, yeah, right, that's it, we've done. Mm. I've got some distance to go, guys. Yeah. And girls. You see, I've done it myself. Well, there you go. Are we out of news? Um, we wanted to talk about John D, didn't we? Oh, John D. So, so, so what's he up to <clears> now? Uh, still dead. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm, or I'm, is he? Well, absolutely. Uh, he might not yeah, be. Yeah. If you don't know who John D is, uh, read more books. But uh, short version: John D was Queen Elizabeth the First's uh, chief magician and spy. He was the original 007. And Damon Albarn did a play called D, an English opera. Yes. Uh, which was all about England and not really about John D. But it was all about magical books. And he was he was a wizard, basically, and he had this massive collection, this huge library. Uh, now, a lot of his library was stolen by Edward Kelly at one point, uh, who was another kind of dodgy kind of occult figure of the time, of the, of the Gloriana period. But, yeah, these stories is quite, quite sad and also quite weird and quite strange. It's been an inspiration for countless works of fiction because, you know, court magician to Queen Elizabeth. It's that kind of period of time yeah, where you can... you can do a lot with that, can't you? Immediately sparks the imagination. And... Why hasn't he been in Doctor Who yet as a character? That's a very good question, isn't That's it? That's a very good question. Doctor Who tends to steer away from magic, direct magic and occultism yeah, yeah, as yeah. a rule. But it's a very good question. At least Edward Kelly. Edward Kelly would be hilarious because he was essentially... How do you describe, describe Edward Kelly? Imagine an occult version of Sean Ryder. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, the Royal College of Physicians is having an exhibition, let's call it, of... of Various bits of Dee's work. Um, so was the he a physician as well? Um, yes. yes, he was. It explores Dee through his personal library. On display for the first time are Dee's mathematical, astronomical, and alchemical texts, many elaborately annotated and illustrated by Dee's own, own hand. Uh, yes, uh, everything's held in the collection of the Royal College of Physicians. There you go. It, it's also on, on, start opens tomorrow until July, Monday to Friday. There's some sort of weekend and evening thing as well, which uh, I've not read the small print on that. I'll be honest with you. I've discovered this too. That, that does sound really exciting, actually. <laughs> he he expanded the whole, you know, the Seal of Solomon and that whole kind of magical symbol. More on that later when I talk about my book. Hey. That that sort of thing. He expanded on uh, that sort of imagery. So a lot of his work is full. If you if you ever watch an episode of Supernatural when they're drawing something into the ground and drawing all these circles that is in poor part Dee's influence on the world mm. that's the sort of thing that he added and I'm sure you, you, you can write in and go well actually I, I think you'll find it dates back to yeah I'm sure it does uh, so yes Mm-hmm. Should we say hello and please get well to our, to our listener? Oh, uh, Mr Run, Run Along Womble, please get well soon. 
be well matey be well recover from whatever it is and um yes um hopefully we'll we'll see you soon in the flesh maybe and if not please keep listening um and next up books So today I'm reviewing terrible old games you've probably never heard of by Stuart Ashens. Um, if you've never heard of Stuart Ashens, he's known for his uh, YouTube channel called Ashens. We had him on the show a few weeks ago as well. Um, he's a lovely chap. Uh, and yeah, basically he's Stuart Ashens. He's known for being wry and sarcastic, mostly about tat that you can buy in his town shop and other <laughs> random things. But one of his, his real passions is video games. And he's this book is not what you normally get when you get a kind of top 10 awful video games is you get E.T. Um, yeah. That, that Atari game that was put in a, a skip and then a bunch of other Landfill, most, yeah. mostly you know Nintendo games and this sort of thing. What you very rarely see is you very rarely see stuff from the ZX Spectrum or from yeah. the VIC-20 or from the BBC Micro. This sort of awful nonsense. Uh, what he's done is he's dug deeply into the world of 80s consoles uh, consoles and uh, PCs um, stuff like you know if you, you might be too young to remember you never know um, th- when home computing became a thing you'd go to Curry's or you'd go to Radio Rentals oh, Radio word. Rentals oh, the there's, there's could, an entire tranche of our, video, of our audience going what are these things? Rumbelows um, there's an entire you know whole, you go to an electronics uh, good store and you'd buy yourself or you get your parents to buy you a home computer and the cheapest ones were ZX Spectrum which were also the most popular yep. but you also had things like BBC Micro and the Commodore and the VIC-20 and all sorts of other weird and wacky and wonderful stuff what happened was you could you could program them you, the programming language came with a computer and you would mostly load stuff on a tape and if you played oh. <laughs> if you played the tape on like audio by mistake, it would it would squeal and screech at you because it's all electronic signals that are going you are supposed to be translated by the computer. And you have to get the volume right as well. You have to fiddle with it and make sure it works. And if you were very rich, you might have a disc drive, but the discs were the size of a small dog, and you had to very carefully <laughs> yeah. load them in. And, and, and there, so there was on. a reason cutscenes existed, and it was because the next thing was loading. Oh yeah, some games were like in multiple parts, and you had to wait like two and a half years for them to to load so this is about these awful awful games that you know as a as a child if you're in your 30s or 40s you would remember having to scrape together the pocket money to get an extra game to play games and some of them were terribly terribly disappointing um he starts off with the likes of alien raiders uh, and alien sidestep alien raiders is basically space invaders written by someone who'd only ever seen space invaders once or had it explained to them badly through four different languages um, <laughs> alien sidestep is exactly the same but less fun uh, he's like strategy strategy alpha move to the left of the screen and shoot strategy omega move to the slightly left of the screen then right then lose um, <laughs> and, and so on um, what Stuart Ashens has done here is he's recaptured the joy and frustration of being a young person with a computer downloading some of these amazing uploading onto your machine some of these amazing games which were the state of the art at the time but now when we look at them were terrible and he's picked out 
just the worst of the bunch. There's a game here that I never knew existed called Bionic Granny. Was, oh. it about, was that a knockoff of Bionic Commando? It sounds like it should be Super Grand the game. It was. Do you remember Super Grand again? Again, there's a whole tranche of our audience going Super Grand. What is this nonsense? Uh, no, it's, it's, yeah. Apparently, apparently that's the general theory. Is it was designed to to cash in on Super Grand, um, but, <laughs> but apparently it predates the TV show. So, but that said, Super Grand was a book first. Right. Wasn't it? So maybe maybe it was maybe it's the first book adaptation, thus making it more relevant to 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 our our show Should right we now. We sing the theme tune. No, I think I think you're right. It might uh, actually no, because be, I don't remember it. I might actually. Uh, of course, you don't. It might actually be Bionic Commando, Bionic Gran- Granny. That's a. But uh, not- the, the, the the screenshot doesn't look like Bionic Commando. I mean, I'm looking at some of the screenshots that you're showing me, and a lot of them are like knockoffs of more classic sort of arcade games. Like you've got like. Versions of Donkey Kong called Crazy Kong. Um, Crazy Donkey. Crazy Kong. A game where the sprites actually move that on a card and you can't actually play it. Uh, there's there's a game here that is so bad that you actually want to it once you run it it doesn't run. You have to go into basic and change some lines of code so you can <laughs> run it. Wow. So you can play the game. Nicely flawed. Uh, I, am, I am seeing YouTube stuff about Bionic Granny, but don't worry. There's, there's, there's a car race game, um, and it's, it's like calling the latest FIFA, FIFA game Ball Kick or calling Bioshock a uh, weird shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and apparently, halfway through Car Race, which was for the MSX One, my goodness, um, an an ancient and pointless system, uh, which you know you could probably buy on eBay for five pounds now, or maybe one hundred and fifty pounds. It depends. Some, sometimes these systems are so it becomes obscure. cult. Yeah, it becomes, yeah. I mean, wasn't the MSX One the one with the huge orange keys as well, which was kind of just like a weird sort of keyboard because a lot of these keyboards were rubbish as well. They kind of made it up. Do, do you know the premise of Bionic Granny? What is it? Go on. It's nearly four o'clock and time for the kids to come home from school. You're a bionic granny and are waiting outside the school to hit the kids as they leave. Some <laughs> will walk down the roads, but others will try to evade you by keeping off the roads. Don't let the lollipop lady throw lollipops at you. Right. That makes no sense. But I can't so you're just a, a curmudgeonly old lady that wants to hit kids with a walking stick? Yes. Makes sense to me. Uh, <laughs> makes about as much uh, much sense as the plot of Bioshock. Let's be honest. Apparently, the lollipop lady is quite fierce. So there's a, he mentions a game called Dangerous Streets here, <laughs> where you look at the uh, the graphics and you go, "Wow, this this could be quite." It looks good. like a Streets of Rage clone. Yeah, it looks like a Street Fighter Two Streets of Rage style clone uh, game. Oh no, it's a Street Fighter one. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but but unfortunately, the you actually look at the graphics and the flesh tones are exactly the same colour as you know the rocks and the trees. Um, they're all weird caricatures. There's a and the the superpowers. So there's one there's one where a character can flip hair gel at their opponent. Are you sure it's hair gel? Let's hope it's hair gel. Badly animated hair gel. There's no one where the guy can flick his hair forward into some sort of scalp lash spike thing. And a weird thing where this guy opens his coat and a dwarf walks out and attacks the guy. <laughs> uh, what? Uh, and apparently it was you know, the controls were awful, the graphics were awful, and it was just a surreal experience. What, what, what system was it for, Ed? Did it say... Because uh, <laughs> the graphics look far beyond the capabilities of my humble specky. <laughs> Commodore Amiga CD32. Oh, the Amiga, the Amiga. Now we're talking state-of-the-art. The Amiga CD32, so you had to have this weird kind of 
box like bolted onto your your machine uh, and then a cd player and cd players of course were extremely expensive back then so because yeah I, I didn't even have a computer at this point of being you know a younger person i was deprived man killer caverns by dowel powers sure. you see because <laughs> because obviously you'll have the game designed because one person has written the entire game because it's the 80s and you could do that yeah. um, um a friend of the family used to be the tutor to oh i can't remember his name now but the guy who first was the first computer games millionaire who wrote manic minor and stuff like that oh i've gotten his name as well now he's so, actually, i think he might be in this yeah, but he, um, my like I say, friend of the family uh, used to be his tutor, and he used he used to tell him Matthew Smith. Matthew, yeah, he That's used to, he, he basically used to tell him, look, if you waste your time on this, you're not going to get anywhere. Just buckle <laughs> down, buckle down, and get on with that. And there is a room in Jet Set Willy called Doctor Jones will never believe this. And <laughs> Doctor Ian Jones is my family friend that the room in Jet Set Willy is named after. Uh, the, nice. the, the creator of Jet Set really is not in this, but then he rarely does interviews of memory serves. Jeff Minter, who created Llamatron. Llamatron! Llamatron is in this, because he interviews, um, also in this book, he interviews various people who are involved in either retro video game nostalgia or created retro video games at the time, you know, when they weren't retro. Llamatron's um, the one that's a bit like the Empire Strikes Back game, isn't it? Yeah, it's, 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 it's you, a bit... You, you fly around and fight giant mutant llamas. Yes, it's like robotron yeah. kind of yeah. weird. He, uh, Jeff Mint is famous for creating games that are really, really good for playing when you're in a certain relaxed state of mind. I um, see. But yeah, there's, there's, he talks about this game... <laughs> he, he talks about this game, Squidge, which requires you to actually... You know, you actually had to type in some code in order to get it to work. And one version of the game is if you actually... There's, there's one of these games that if you actually succeeded it, you give you a photo of the game's designer who was like 14. There are always 14-year-olds, aren't there? And quite possible, possibly his telephone number so you could give him a ring. <laughs> <laughs> Bless. So... That's, that's the Easter egg. <laughs> as, 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 a, as, a, as a book, it's a dip into the world of nostalgia. Um, if you are of a certain age, you'll just be... You've just heard us go, oh, wow, look at that! Um, and that's fantastic radio, which, obviously. Which, which is our kind of response. So if you're, like, you know, over 30, if you're under 30, what this is is a piece of games history that you've missed completely. And it's, you know, it's always useful to know where the roots of things have come from and to, to understand exactly how awful this can go wrong. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, games are still being developed in people's, you know, bedrooms to this day thanks to the wonders of stuff like swift and android app development yeah. stuff so if you're into that sort of thing or there's someone in your life who's into that sort of thing give it a look it's also been it's by Stuart Ashens. it's produced on by unbound which is why it, and the back few pages have got lots and lots of people going hey it's got lots of names of people because this was crowdfunded by unbound uh you are a unique way of getting your book published and uh, yeah it was rather fun quite enjoyed it Oh, there we go. Across the world. 
if you're listening to us live, that was a bit of Bowie. If you wasn't listening to us live, I was just a bit of rambling nonsense, followed by a jingle, followed by me saying, if you're listening to us live, that was a bit of Bowie. Stop it. I can go on for hours like no, this. No, don't. Please don't. Okay. Um, so, yes, for, for obvious reasons, um, and if you're listening to this like a year, a year in the future, uh, Bowie recently passed away. Mm. Um, so we felt we'd do golden years because you know Stephen King and all that a great sci-fi TV show I thought as well golden years the, the golden years is a sci-fi yeah, TV show it's uh, a sci-fi TV show is it? yeah a sci-fi TV show based on the Stephen King book I've never seen it um, it's about a scientist who discovers the secret of youth uh, and it all goes interestingly wrong because it's a Stephen King story and it's not allowed to go you know anything other than interestingly wrong absolutely so talking about fantastic books well, let me move on and talk about uh, The Queen of the Dark Things by C. Robert Cargill. Uh, this was published in 2014 by Golanx, and I really liked it. Um, I think Ed's reviewed Dreams and Shadows, which was the previous I really book. Liked it, yeah. um, if you don't know, uh, if you haven't read the first book, I'll do a very brief recap. Um, it's set in the United States, uh, around the city of Austin, Texas. Um, it's sort of a contemporary fantasy, sort of almost in the urban fantasy genre. There are supernatural creatures, um, uh, sort of. Uh, pixies and uh, uh, spirits of the woods and things like that and they they exist underseen uh, as a kind of underbelly um, to the world that we know of um, the main character in this book is a young man by the name of Colby Stevens who is a wizard um, a wizard uh, who was kind of he became a wizard as a child uh, which was uh, Flash, uh, you know, told in flashback in the previous book. Um, uh, the, the, the reason why he became a wizard is because he met a genie in the woods, and one of his three wishes was to become a wizard. Um, th- a lot of the themes in in both of these books are a, a kind of "be careful what you wish for" vibe, a bit like sort of uh, you know the Wishmaster movies and stuff like that, and the the idea that having that as a you know a power a power of wishing and that it's going to come back and get you it's pretty common and very very well done in this um the genie yashar is one of the other characters in this very very prominent in the first book slightly played down in the second book um yashar is a genie who is uh, he's been cursed for all his wishes that he grants to go bad um an awful lot of the stuff in this book is, is quite angsty. Um, it seems quite dark and angsty because whenever you, you you gain power in this book, it's going to come back and get you. So Yashar's uh, wishes always go bad. So when he first meets Colby and grants the child Colby this wish to become a wizard, he doesn't really want to do it, but he only does it to save himself from dying because that's the only way a genie can die if somebody forgets about them so he has to come back and grant a wish to be remembered um it's quite it's it's quite dark and quite complex in that way um moving on colby is a wizard uh colby is an unwilling wizard in a sense because he no longer wants the power that the 10 year old boy craved um 
and it's made him a lot of enemies in the first book and now he just wants to get on with his life so he's working in an occult bookshop he is writing under a pseudonym about uh, things of the occult uh, that only he really knows about um, he's commentating on works by people like John Dee <laughs> I think. Um, and the nature of magic and things like that and generally just trying to get on with his life um, unfortunately his life as always happens in, in Cargill's books, comes back and bites him. Because he has power, he therefore has responsibility, yada yada. Um, it's very dark in that sense, but it's also lightened by a great sense of humour and a sort of warmth between the characters. Um, the other, One of the other main characters in this is Gossamer, a talking dog. Very, very close to my heart. I'm a big fan of the old Labrador, which Gossamer is. And his relationship with Gossamer the talking dog is, is one of the highlights of the book. <laughs> um, the book itself progresses the story of Colby Stevens very nicely, albeit in quite a convoluted way. Um, I, I enjoy the plot. Uh, it, it, there's, there's more flashback. We see more of Colby's childhood. Um... He he met a, a little girl in Australia on his travels with Yashar, the the genie, um, and made friends with her. And she's part of the plot of this book is that somewhere along the line she has gone wrong, and she is the the, the titled character Queen of the Dark Things. Um, and this is stuff again he unwillingly has to deal with. Um, it becomes quite convoluted in, in, in structure because you've got the present, you've got flashbacks to the past of his childhood with uh, Yashar and uh, an Australian Aboriginal uh, wise man or cl clever man by the name of Mandu and his relationship with, with the little girl Casey. Um, so you've got flashbacks to that, you've got bits of his pseudonym's academic writing on the nature of magic thrown in there, and you also have a, uh, a quest structure wherein he's trying to gather MacGuffins <laughs> as it goes along, and... It the main plot of it is that it's basically him versus a group of demons called the 72 versus the queen of the dark things who is trying to gather the power of the, these 72 demons to herself and there's a game of poker going on basically between all these different elements and we the reader can't really see what's going on uh, that's, that's one of the hands that the author keeps to himself so it can be quite hard to follow, quite convoluted in that way. Me and my wife have both discussed it, and there's there's one plot thing there where we can't quite work out what happened, and we reread it, and we still can't quite work out what happened. So it's it, 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 it's a tough one to follow in that respect. But in terms of the, the style that it's written and the humour, the prose is easy, so it will keep you reading. It's just... You, you may need a whiteboard, I think, to follow the trail of MacGuffins. Um, when these books came out, one of the things that he, uh, Cargo, got compared to quite a bit was Gaiman. And I yes. Felt, uh, and I felt, on the one hand, that was a little bit unfair because Gaiman is 
you know, the, the, this guy with a huge reputation. And Cargill, this, this was pretty much his debut. He's, he'd written something just before then. He'd written the movie Sinister, but it was pretty much his debut. So he kind of, you know, he put him on a put him on a plinth there. Yeah. Uh, but I think when people compare it to Game, what they mean is that the the depth and the kind of the depth and the breadth of the world and the fact that it's this big world stuffed full of ideas. So many ideas. And all of them are. F- all of them have these dark, sharp barbs that if, if you mm. yank them to find out more, it just pulls out more darkness. And because they're barbed, they end up covered in blood and filth. And it's that sort of, it's that sort of you dive in and you just find yourself. Yeah, and, and, and I think also the flavour of the world as well. There's, you know, it's, it's very American gods. There's, there's America with this dark underbelly, these supernatural creatures that, when we look at them, look kind of just like us. <laughs> Um, walking around and, and 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 there's rules that bind everything together. Part of the Colby's game of poker <laughs> that he's playing with all the other characters in it is um, is the fact that he's trying to negotiate the way around rules. And we thought you mentioned the Seal of Solomon earlier, so it goes into all these kind of arcane rules by which demons and spirits can be bound. And he's just going around trying to find loopholes and things like that so it's interesting and it's good but you'll need a whiteboard (laughs) for me uh loved it loved the tone loved the dialogue because of that added complexity i mean i could follow the first one without a whiteboard um this one's slightly defeated i don't know maybe it's horses for courses maybe someone who's into that will will love that more um Am I allowed to read a short passage? Oh, of course you can. A short time. So, this is very early on in the book, and Colby is uh, on his roof with his dog, Gossamer, who is now a talking dog, um, by the power of Colby's magic. And he's moping because of the events of the first book. His best friend, Ewan, six months ago, died ostensibly because of him and his magic. I hate it up here, said Gossamer, warily peering over the edge. You don't hate it. Stop being dramatic. I don't like it. You're the one who wanted to walk. Walk, not climb. We took stairs. You climb stairs. I don't like stairs. Medieval contraptions built for things with far longer legs. Maybe if there were an elevator and a railing, I might like it up here. But there isn't, and I don't. Well, I I like it. I had a really good talk up here once. The one with the drunk? The angel, yeah. Gossamer growled a little. That guy's a dick. He's not a dick. We just don't see eye to eye anymore. He's a dick. I don't like the way he and his friends treat you. Maybe they have a good reason. You don't remember that night, said Colby. Don't be that guy. Not tonight, boss. I remember it well enough. You did what you did. What you had to do. We have to move on. I'm trying, but everyone else wants to remind me. Nobody makes you read the paper. I should be able to read the paper I want. Boss, he was on the cover. They're all over town. What was I supposed to do? Boss, shut up, Gossamer. You haven't soaked up enough dream stuff to be smarter than me yet. You don't have to be smart to know better than to read stuff you know will piss you off. Lots of people do it, every day. They're not smart either. Maybe they want to be mad. Maybe they want to read their events of the day and feel somehow involved with them. Maybe they think being mad keeps them involved. You think? Colby looked over at Gossamer, the dog's eyes big and brown, peering back at him with a mix of love and pity. Shut up, dog. Don't dog me. It's patronising. That's why I do it. 
That's not what a good friend does. Colby grimaced, insulted. What would you know about being a good friend? Gossamer straightened up proudly, showing off his head high, his gaze regal, reddish fur blowing in the light breeze. Man's best friend. That joke is still not funny. It is the dogs. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lovely warm friendship between them and the idea of a talking retriever is absolutely adorable Um, a lot of plot twists, a lot of good friendships a lot of good male bonding in it actually Uh, Colby's relationship with the dog, with Yashar with some of the other characters is really nice, really nice uh, I um, I really really liked it as well I I had had an interesting experience because I read uh, I read both books and just finished Queen of Dark. I finished Queen of Dark Things. I met Robert Cargill at uh, Worldcon uh, a couple of years ago, and that I read that, and then I had to. I basically had a book of straight after reading that. I had to read because it was run up to Worldcon, and that, mm. and it was that, that crazy period of time that I had just a whole pile of stuff. And he was like, "So, what do you think of my book?" And my brother, I was just like, I, "I've written a review of it." <laughs> because it's such a complicated text my brain was just like um hang on as I was desperately trying to untangle it from everything else and now that I've had the the, the kind of the time the, the kind of the, the time I now want to go back to that world and read it again at, at more leisurely pace uh, worth a, a go I'd say yeah definitely uh, he's a lovely chap as well he's a really nice guy um, I again I met him at Worldcon and he was just one of those kind of voices of reason that was kind of just a, a lovely lovely guy who's really he seems strong. really you get the impression when you read it he's he's a really laid back you sometimes read other characters apart from Colby who's an uptight mess and you kind of think well there's the author he also wrote Sinister and he's got a, another book called I think it's The Rust of the Sea which is about robots uh, which is coming out so not a, not another Colby Stevens book but Sea of Rust uh, is coming out this year as well Is he doing more Colby Stevens do we know? Um, I'd like to read more I think I think he's been asked a few times and he's like he definitely wants to get back to that but I think it's I think it's he's taking a break yeah. taking a break at before. least yeah. I think you can see that as well sometimes it takes a while to Yeah, uh, I, I'm looking on the, on the schedule and there's an untitled cargo free of uh, free of free so I'm assuming that there's another one on its way but um, I think he's going to do Sea of Rust which is a sci-fi story next which okay. to be worked on yeah nice uh, change of genre and coming up next I think we're going to talk some more nonsense about books in general yeah Bowie earlier, obviously also Alan Rickman, who, as far as this show is concerned, is famous for being um, Snape, Snape, Snape yeah. Severus Snape. Um, though obviously he's you know had a very long and established career of of cancelling Christmas, pretty much uh, in everything from Robin Hood, uh, yeah, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, yeah, to truly madly ruining Christmas in um, not truly madly, no, no, in um, Love Actually. 
Are you in Christ- oh, yeah. he, he cancels Christmas. Apparently, it was definitely an affair. Yeah. Um, guy who wrote it went to see it recently with his wife, who live tweeted the whole thing. And apparently, uh, yeah, that was an affair that Alan Rickman's character had with the secretary. Proper. Oh, there was a whole it, thing. There was, there, was, there was a lot of stuff that made the editing room floor. Oh, I see. So he actually had an affair with her. It wasn't just flirtation and Ooh. buying her. A, I was going to say because I thought it, that was a bit strong to break up over a flirtation. But yeah, yeah. There's a lot. A lot of stories got edited out of that film as well. There is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Love Actually isn't a book, but it's no. <laughs> it's one of those it's one of those movies that as I've watched the more I've seen it more than a few times because it's always on ITV um, <laughs> it's become a Christmas movie it's become a Christmas movie which mm-hmm. is an odd choice of Christmas movies but it's uh, there's, there's a handful of stories there that I just sit there and go nope nope the one of Egg from This Life uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and <laughs> he's nope. stalking Kira Knightley and he's just like nope 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 um, but I have, I have, I have that problem with that particular director's set of movies. Anyway, I've, I've serious issues with About Time. Yeah, but yeah. but it makes you cry so hard that, that it takes you a bit to go. Eight, I've, wait, well, I've, I've not, not what? seen that what? one. What? No. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Alan yeah. Rickman, Severus Snape. Yes, uh, Severus. The, the thing is, is that sometimes uh, a voice or a role or a performer will come along, and they'll do a, a book adaptation, or you know, they'll take a role from a book that just defines that character for you forever and more. And I think the problem with Snape, not the problem, the thing with Snape and the thing with Alan Rickman's performance is because he is so good at playing the sneering villain, and he was famous for playing the sneering villain that. You know, J.K. Rowling said that she'd pretty much imagined him to be Alan Rickman, so when they cast him as Alan Rickman, it was perfect. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, when you read the Harry Potter books, it's, it's Alan Rickman. It's always going to be Alan mm. Rickman. There's nothing you can do to stop it from... Whereas, whereas I can imagine, you know, if they, if, if they ever remake the, the movies, Harry is not always going to be Daniel Radcliffe to me. Sorry, but he's not. He's a specific, you know, because Daniel Radcliffe is a, is a woman man and Harry's not. Yeah. Didn't, didn't Terry Pratchett's Twitter reactivate itself to say that he's the greatest Lord Veterinary who never was? Yeah. yeah. Goodness I, me. Mm. That could have worked. I, mean, uh, I, I Rob, thought Charles Rob, Dance was pretty good. To yeah, me. Rob, who's the other half of, of the uh, Terry Pratchett Twitter, because it's officially Terry and Rob, has occasionally been tweeting since last, uh, last summer. Oh, So... Oh, hasn't there been a, a weird Terry Pratchett tweet as well? There's been a poster which I saw on Terry Pratchett's Facebook feed, and it's just got a shadow of Terry Pratchett's face and yeah, a date. Yeah, 14th of April, yes. What's that about? And no one knows what it's about. It's a big old teaser. That's not the date of the play, is it? Uh, of the no, the play, the play's earlier than that, isn't it? The play's it? earlier. The, the, the play, the... Is it Oxford? Yeah. Play yeah. of... Oh, they're, they're doing a they're doing a version of Midsummer Night's Dream slash uh, Lords and Ladies. Okay. Slash the Terry Pratchett Shakespeare's The Globe. Okay. You, you know how they did the Science of, of the Discworld? Yes, yes. They called it The Globe, and they had like a Shakespeare theme. So they're doing a Shakespearean Discworld play. <laughs> That'll um, work, yeah. And it's 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 basically it's happening every it's happening in the same place that all the others have, and it's it's uh, Steve Briggs. Who a whole lot of the other adaptations mm. as well, so it's this big kind of because obviously 2016 is the the anniversary of Shakespeare's death, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Uh, so they're doing this Terry Pratchett Shakespeare thing. So do do we have any clues about what this this? No, and it's is? really annoying. Well, that'll that'll work as a, <laughs> as a marketing strategy, or whatever it is. <laughs> Interesting, interesting to see see because he's he's all the books have been written. 
Yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing new that he he didn't write anything else. No. All of that's out, as far as we've been told. There's so no. Well, we know there's no more Discworld books. Oh, that's a good question. That's a good point. That's a very specific point, actually. Very specific. Hmm. Well, it's not the anniversary of either his birth or his death, because that's July and October. It could be a Sky thing. They could have made another TV series with, yeah. and, and downplayed it with the fact that the new Terry wasn't well, so the... Oh, no, sorry, know. sorry. His birthday is April, but it's the 28th of April. Right. Hmm. Well, well, more news than that as we get it, I think. Oh, we, I don't. We're, 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 we're in fact over. Are we out of time? <laughs> no, we're so out of time, it's not funny. Right, let's walk away. Well, <laughs> let's take a step back. the sunset or the sunrise depending on where you are in the world right now it's goodbye from me Ed Fortune and it's goodbye from me Cy Lloyd The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst magazine presented by Ed Fortune and Cy Lloyd produced by Anne Davis 